Welcome to the Talking Story Podcast. We'll be your hosts for season one. I'm Lorenzo Roel Flores Please. I'm Ezra Kikaway Cook. And I'm Oceana Sawyer. In this space, as people of the global majority, we reflect on our experiences living here in Jefferson County, a semi-rural region of the Olympic Peninsula, which is primarily white folks. This is us talking to us about us for us. In this episode entitled Liberating Education, we sit down with Juri Jun. Juri is the vision steward for Sky Bear Agile Learning Community and a parent of a self-directed child. A naturopathic physician and ancestral healing practitioner, she has always been drawn to healing. Her personal journey of decolonization, healing from internalized oppression, and cultural reclamation, as well as inspiration from her child, led her to create a radical, liberated alternative to school for PGM children in her community. She envisions a community of children growing up fully honoring themselves, remaining liberated, and staying connected with their own specific and unique gift and purpose to offer to the world. She sees this work as her deepest ancestor and earth-honoring work yet. Welcome, Juri. Welcome, Juri, to this conversation. This episode is coming after some other episodes that we've done around education here in Port Townsend. And so we're really curious to hear your take on how we can create learning environments for our kids of the global majority. And I know that your story starts way before you even got around to creating Sky Bear. So why don't we just start where I've heard you talk about the beginning, which is with your own journey. Sure. Definitely, I never in my life thought I would become the founder or launch something like Sky Bear or be involved with youth education. It definitely wouldn't have happened without myself going through a process of reclaiming parts of myself and realizing what a product of colonization I had become. I mean, there's nothing like just crying your eyes out with this sudden realization of how I had become a product of decades and layers and layers of colonization through my education, my 20 years in institutionalized education, as well as, you know, so I'm from Korea, I have Korean ancestry, and I think it was also realizing how for the last 70 plus years, just under the guise of military allyship and the good old fight for democracy and the capitalist economy. I had a whole collective and nation of people behind my back to make me a successful, well-educated model minority, right? Mm. So I think that unraveling started happening for me in my late 30s after I'd become a mom. So with that process going on inside of me and just really needing to work hard at healing my my own internalized oppression and reclaiming parts of myself that I had exiled and 
tried so hard to assimilate, to make it, uh, combined with just what my child was asking for. We did start with the public school system at, at one point, and by then he had already experienced being outdoors, you know, all year round, being part of a nature pod through the pandemic when preschools had closed down. So he was already primed for just having that freedom and exploration. And when we first put him to school, it was kind of like, okay, when do I get to stop going here? <laughs> um, yeah, and just, I, th I think his, you know, comment was, I don't understand why I have to go and sit in an uncomfortable chair and write things on paper just to put it in a, in a folder. So those two things kind of converged, and as you know, the universe is always conspiring to push you through to the next big growth point. And so it was a really hard edge for me to even dare to dream and think of something, an alternative for my child. And yeah, and I had to come up with something that would also support because my husband and I, we both work, so it's hard for working parents to try and homeschool or unschool. So that's what led to creating an actual program. It's a SkyBear Agile Learning Community. It's a self-directed education program where we really center youth autonomy, really trusting that Children have known how to educate themselves and learn through the hundreds and thousands of years before the recent creation of institutionalized education, right? And historians and anthropologists have documented how children all through time have learned through play, through play and exploration. So that's kind of the philosophy and the central tenet behind self-directed education trusting them to learn what they need to, to learn what they want to, without being in a school. I want to take this all the way back, though, because you said that it started with your own reclamation. And maybe you have, like, a moment where it was like, oh, no, I need to, like, think about who I've become in this system I know that for myself, I had many moments like that along the way, but certainly in 2020, mm -hmm. I think all of us who had been doing any kind of work, 2020 took that to a whole new level. So what was your, like, what was the catalyzing event for your decolonizing journey? Yeah, I mean, 2020 definitely catalyzed it. There was a moment before that, it was actually in 2019 when I was in this training program it was with a group of people that I had created really strong bonds with we had gone through a lot together it was a psychotherapy training program so you know it was three years of going through that program together but it was a mostly white group and during the training something happened where it, there was a very obvious racist thing that was said and acted out like in one of our psychodramas and and I remember just I'm sure we've all had that experience my face was like I'm sure it was burning red but I totally got mute you know and I completely went into survival fighting my like do I can I leave the room do I just have to stay here do I get to say something like going through all that 
response, which I'm really used to doing. You know, and that night the program ended and the whole night, of course, I kept replaying it in my head. And it wasn't until the morning where because I talked to my best friend and she was able to call it out as like, no, that is racist. <laughs> you know, there's no confusion about it. And because of just that tiny bit of support, I was able to bring it to the group and call it out and say like, that should have never happened. And nobody in this room stood up and said anything about it. And I wasn't able to, and none of you did. And that was a huge rupture. All of it played out in the room, right? The white fragility, the white woman's tears, you know, the instructor didn't know how to hold the container anymore. And it was totally, that was like the big crack for me where, you know, I had to face like, oh, because I stood up for myself and said something, now I can't be in this space in the same way where I had to make that choice. Mm -hmm. Am I gonna stay here and kind of continue to compromise myself, continue to be okay and perform through the rest of the program as if a huge breach hadn't happened? Or what is really the empowering and centering thing for myself to do? And after like months of agonizing, I, I did leave that program with only like one week left to my completion, like getting a certificate and all that. So, mm. which, you know, I had never, I was like the model A student and high achiever, all those things, all the things that had been like conditioned into <laughs> me. So that act was a big initiation and really symbolic of saying, no, I'm not going to put myself in this position and do what I'm always expected to do. It was a totally different world for me after that. And you know, it wasn't it wasn't easy. Like it wasn't like, oh okay, now I did that, so now I'm all good and free and clear. It was that was just the beginning of <laughs> of starting my deep, deep healing process. You know, when you tell this story, which you were talking, I was reminded of so many instances in white dominated spaces where I had to make that choice. And I know that we all have been in those spaces where you're just trying to get a, you have a goal. You're, you have a certain goal, you're just trying to get a certificate, you're trying to get this training or that training. And you start off with the best of intentions and then the microaggressions start piling up and they're piling up and they're piling up and then your body can't really take it anymore. And suddenly you're at this crucible moment where you're flooded with rage and fear. Yeah. And all your conditioning is to stay quiet, stay safe, just keep going, keep getting along, keep these white people comfortable so you can continue <laughs> doing your thing and get your certificate, get your degree, get your whatever. But then the moment comes, you go, I cannot. I cannot do this and still be true to myself, true to my people, true to humanity if I don't say something. But the cost of saying something is so high because white people don't know how to hold it. 
Mm. Hardly anybody knows how to hold it. And so now, as you say, there's this rupture and there's no coming back from that. And you, and we all know that. The moment we speak up, we know there's going to be no coming back. I, I just think of like a couple of big moments in my life where it's like, I left the room, but then I had to come back. Or I left the room and I never came back. Or I left the program one, two weeks before it was over and did not get their certificate. I know another person right here in town who didn't finish their master's degree because they just couldn't do it anymore. You know, they were a semester away. So we all have those stories and it's because of what it takes to navigate these, you know, white supremacist, patriarchal dominated spaces. And by the way, I want to say no shade to anybody who's making it through those systems or making those systems habitable for us. That's real and that should continue to be done. And I bless everybody out there who is holding it down for us <laughs> in these, you know, white dominated spaces. Bless you. I also like the sort of subversive thing that you have done, which is, okay, I'm not going to try to change that. I'm just going to create a new table. No seat at this table. I'm creating yeah. a new table. And so how Skybear emerged from that journey in this town, which has its own particular, I'm just going to say weirdness. <laughs> it has its own particular <laughs> kind of like, oh, we're a little progressive, but not really when it comes down to it. you know. So can you talk about what it was like to navigate in your Korean body, creating an alternative school system for your son and all PGM children in this particular town? Yeah. So I sat for a while when I had to decide, okay, am I really going to do this thing that I've never <laughs> done before and put other projects and things that I've wanted to do on hold to create this program? Versus, you know, can I live with sending my child into the system? I think somatically, like in my nervous system, I knew that the amount of energy and heartbreak and harm and all the navigating that I would have had to go through if we did participate in the school system would be more than the energy that I would be spending trying to <laughs> run a school. And trust me, a lot of people warned me like, okay, do you know how hard it is to run a nonprofit? Do you know how hard it is to run a business? Do you know how hard it is to run a school and make it sustainable, especially here in Port Townsend? But once I really tuned into what I wanted for my child and what he was saying, you know, and part of this also has to do with my connecting with and forming relationship with my ancestors and just kind of attuning into what are the hopes and dreams of my ancestors. Mm -hmm. And I have the belief that our descendants, like my child, is an ancestor returned, right? And so if he's saying out of his mouth what he wants to do, I couldn't bear the thought of never truly knowing who he is meant to become in this world and in this life because I knew that by going into the school system, it would mean that he would have to assimilate and exile parts of himself and maybe even for himself not know 
what his true dreams and passions and gifts and intelligences are, right? Because that's what school is about, a very set curriculum, set methods, and, you know, there's a whole context and history to schools and how they came to be about. And it, it still carries that baggage, and I can go into that a little bit. Yeah, can you actually say more about what you know about the history of the school system? Because I think this part is really <laughs> like, what? Yeah, so the history of schools, you know, and this is all documented by historians and, you know, other people out there who document such things and, and do their research. But it was really with this big shift to agriculture based societies where going from hunter gatherer societies, now with the shift to agriculture, there was a huge need for laborers, right? So before, being hunter-gatherers, it didn't require intensive laboring. It, it, it required skills and a lot of knowledge, but the labor piece wasn't a need. And so with that shift, there was a huge need for laborers and children became those laborers. But children, as we all might remember from before it got conditioned out of us, their instinct and urge and drive is to play and explore. But you couldn't have that if you were going to force them into all-day labor. So at that time, systems had to be created to beat all of that physically, like beat it out of children, this urge to be curious and play and explore. And instead, the society needed children who would be obedient and comply and not want to go out and play and explore and learn and all, all the things that come so naturally. And that continued on to the industrial age. And now it was, you know, in some ways worse, right? So from being outside all day to like inside factories. And again, it, the goal was to shape and mold these children to serve and follow rules and they were punished for not following the rules so to be productive it's all the trappings of and it still continues on to this day so the history you can see how that baggage has remained and sure after you know in more modern times like the late 19th century and and then into the 20th century of course there were improvements and reform but everyone just kind of took those old models and then came in with their own agendas, right? Like the first school that was established was in the colony of Massachusetts, and it was to make good Puritans, right? Mm -hmm. Re reading was to make sure that you could read the Bible on your own and follow everything it said. You know, there are all these nursery rhymes, like from A to Z, that are tied into the Bible so there was that piece, the religious piece, and then still like many industries needed workers. And now we can just look at all the ways that not just school, but school and everything around us, you know, is being used to condition all of us to become good workers and good consumers and good soldiers. There's a historical context that I think it's important to look at. It's not because that is the best thing for children. Or even us as a society. Having millions and billions of people who can do nothing but follow rules 
yeah. is not entirely useful if you're gonna, especially in these times, where all of that's breaking down anyway. Right. You know, all of those systems are collapsing, and now how are we gonna make it? You know, so to have this sort of innate creativity, generativity, self-directed, self-made, self-generated way of being, I feel like it's kind of required going forward. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I do feel like it's 2023 and the earth is on fire and mm-hmm. things are... We have a presidential <laughs> candidate. Candidate for president who's been to trial a few times already. <laughs> I mean, everything we thought we knew is just like breaking down. Yeah. 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 So going back to this question about why I felt it was important and focusing on the PGM community, right? For me, it's like, how are they going to come out of the system on the other side, right? It would be an impossible expectation or ask to think that they can go through a system that is white supremacist, Eurocentric, and has this baggage that I just went over briefly, and then to expect that they would come out being empowered and be able to center themselves, right? And know their true worth and value. It's just like when I had that moment of (laughs) realizing how could I have become anything other than what I had become after decades and decades and layers of the conditioning and, and, and colonization, right? So that's what I didn't want for my child. I didn't want him to be later down the line in his 30s, like, having to do this recovery (laughs) and hearing workshops. (laughs) Yes, yeah. So as much as possible, even though all around them they're going to be, you know, we're still living inside these systems, but to be in a space where they're truly centered and they get to explore other ways of being, other ways of knowing, Right? So even what's counted as knowledge, we've become totally disconnected from, and schools only emphasize one way of knowing as the right way of knowing. There's a big focus on certain intelligences and skill sets, like, you know, your conventional reading, math, general knowledge, which again is Eurocentric general quote unquote knowledge. (laughs) But That's just a very small subset of intelligences that's like valued and centered in school. Children, they come with their gifts and and who they are, and we're not very good at valuing all of that to really be nurtured and come to fruition. Where can we look for our future and, you know, the problem solving and creativity and reconnecting and reclaiming to other ways and other knowledges? And it's like it's a whole potential and unexplored territory. And that's what I want to nurture in children here. And then going back to the like trying to do it here in Port Townsend. Yeah, it's, it's hard because I learned through this first year that what you were saying about like, huh, okay, I guess this is still too radical for Port Townsend. And then of course dealing, like being in a rural, small town. So the population is what, only 10,000. So then you're looking at this one very radical end of the spectrum and 
It's just the numbers are really small of families who are ready to try this out or who are coming with a unschooling mindset. But I want to keep making this space available and open. And I do want to say it's not about needing to be at Sky Bear or in a program. I mean, if parents can support kids at home to be self-directed and kind of work on truly trusting them in what they need to learn, even myself, even though I'm I'm doing this thing with Sky Bear, right? I have to constantly check myself on all the schoolishness. So schoolishness is something that's mm-hmm. talked about in the self-directed education world, right? Like think of all the schoolish ideas that we have that we just take, you know, unquestioned that are conditioned into us, right? Like they're really interested in in so and so. So I need to go get like all the books and then kind of sit down and try to impose this thing and make it a lesson. Like even that, although you could say that it was a child-led idea, you really have to check like am I making it schoolish rather than really honoring how it's going to play out for the child, right? Oh, this is so good. As soon as you say schoolish, you invoke for me, you know, the grand dame of unschooling, right? Akila Richards. And so can you just say some more about what do you mean by unschoolish? Because I think that's a word that not that many people really understand. What I mean by schoolishness? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just all the ways that we think about how learning and education takes place, that it's tied to like, okay, you have to sit kids down and you have to prepare a lesson. And if it's not documented, then it didn't really happen. And then you have to measure it in some way and evaluate, right? Or it has to like be structured. And then even the whole reward system, like we've made motivation extrinsic, right? It's something that we have to do to the kids, like increase their motivation or give them motivation, which is a totally bizarre idea because kids are motivated. They're motivated to do what they want to do or what they, you know, have you ever seen a kid who's not motivated to play? And play is learning. The idea that play is not learning, that learning doesn't take place when kids are playing is also just totally... (laughs) bizarre. Um, that's a schoolish idea. Yeah, right? yeah. You, you, that's not learning. Play isn't learning. What's right. learning is you're sitting down with a book. That's it. That's what schoolishness is. You know, those ideas that we have, the assumptions we have, and that we don't question. And and trust me, even for me, it'll creep in, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, one example is when my kid is drawing comics, right? Which, that's pretty much how he learned to read, because he loves comic books and write because he wants to write these comics about mice and their cities and whatever, you know? They're so good. (laughs) But then he would ask, like, oh, how do you spell this word, you know? And instead of just telling him the letters, I try to do that thing, you know, that parents and teachers do. Like, well, what do you think it starts with? Like, ah, but, like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah, and then, you know, and, like, trying to sound it out so that he could... And he was just not having it. Like, no, just tell me how you spell it. You know, just give me the letters, right? Instead of, it's a kind of manipulation to try and get him to do something when he's focused on doing his comic and getting this word written out in this word bubble, right? 
but we have this like pressure about oh this is my opportunity I can turn this into a teaching or learning moment <laughs> or whatever but you know but then six months down the line sure enough he knows how to spell those words like why did I feel like I had to impose this little quote-unquote lesson in the middle of his comic writing so it, it creeps in all the time like oh so like yeah, I, I just noticed my kid loves to do this thing or likes drawing, so I'm going to go get him an art class or art teacher, which, like, mm. sure, if that's what the child wants and, and needs, and you know, but it's usually, like, without consent or without, you know, realizing how that might actually dampen the whole thing, right? Because now you're going to put your child in a class where they might be told what to draw and how to draw. <laughs> <laughs> So there's that piece. I want to go back to also about why I feel strongly about having a presence here in Port Townsend and how I feel in general about PGM being in and claiming space in the self-directed education movement, right? Because, you know, liberated learning, being self-directed, unschooling, it's cultural change work right? Mm. That, that's happening. I mean, it's happening. And it really got a lot of momentum during and after the pandemic, right? Because schools were closed. But like with anything, I feel really passionate that it doesn't, again, even this sliver of alternative, you know, trying to advocate for youth autonomy and freedom and alternative education, that that tiny space doesn't become, again, a white-dominated space. Right, because we all know that, yeah, PGM youth and kids will also have their unique needs around growing up PGM and encountering systemic racism and racialization and othering. So, like with any change movement, it's like I really want us to edge ourselves in there and insert our voice so that even that space doesn't become a white-dominated space. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. It does, but I'm going to come at this from another angle. It's what you said was dead on. But I actually brought this episode up at the Sunday gatherings, our Sunday dinners. There were a couple people there who actually knew about self-directed learning and were interested. But overall, where the conversation landed as I'm listening to you talk, I realized it landed in this very kind of uh, acquiescence to mainstream alternative learning. So like the schools that are already sort of in place here in Port Townsend that are not the public school, but there are charter schools or they're alternative schools that are already well known. Mm-hmm. There was this sort of way that there was this acquiescence into, well, you know, that's just available. For one thing, they're accessible because they're relatively affordable because they've been subsidized or they've been around for long enough. But I want to come back to this idea that it's not enough to just want to put your kid in an alternative learning situation because it's cool and whizzy and and all of that. Because what you're actually asking or what you're actually trying to do is to create something that is counter-cultural a being who can exist in a culture that is not this current culture. 
And so what it takes to actually do that, I think, is a higher bar than a lot of people are willing to commit to. And this, I think, this conversation is also wrapped up in uncolonizing ourselves. How far are we willing to go to excavate our adjacency to whiteness in order to reclaim actually who we really are and not care about making it in capitalist systems? Exactly. Like, how comfortable are we to really, truly say fuck you to the system. Right. And as a parent, make that choice for your child. And especially going back to PGM families who, it is a much deeper internalized piece to make it and survive, right? Because of the marginalized identities. So for those with marginalized identities, I think it is a bigger ask. It is a bigger ask, for sure. And it is that struggle. I won't, I was going to say dance, but it's much more painful than, than a dance, right? It, it is a struggle to be between the, okay, how much do I have to approximate and make sure my kid could survive in the system while trying to do my best to offer some holistic rounded outness or, you know, offer something else. And I've seen families go through that. Like, yes, I believe in self-directed education and unschooling, but I really need to make sure my kid knows how to read or knows how to do math, right? And it's like, where is that coming from? It's there, it's insidious, it's everywhere. And everything around us is going to constantly tell us that. So... It's not an easy journey, and it doesn't happen overnight. I just kind of have to watch when that's coming up for me around my child, or even in in the context of of the SkyBear program, like, oh, maybe we should be doing this, maybe we should have someone come and teach reading, or... But for me personally, it, it has been just that, like, it's so much about trust, right? And I really believe that our kids will show us and tell us what's needed, right? And when you, when you see your child thriving, the reward is so, it's the joy that you see in their faces when they've just figured it out for themselves. Or like they're exploring and they have this question and then they figure it out or you're telling them, you know, and like their curiosity is getting satisfied. Like that's priceless. Mm. Like I gotta say, Lorenzo, I was just thinking about how now here you are like this brilliant person starting off in college and you're going to the University of Washington, which is a pretty traditional university is kind of like an extension of a continuation of public education to move into the university setting. And so how does a person really become a scholar in a setting that's set up to be schoolish? And then I guess maybe the question is, then what is actually the goal of going to the University of Washington? Not you particularly, but anybody going to any university, then what becomes the goal? Is it to get a degree so you can have a way of participating in the system? 
That's essentially what we're saying. Yeah. Versus doing something else. But also recognizing that participating in the system is not bad. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. It's just more like maybe you could do it if you had some kind of awareness. Almost like you're sort of like having two minds about it. Like, hey, I'm I'm just in this dream (laughs) that you guys are calling education, but I'm really awake over here (laughs) with some other thoughts and goals. And then how does that get nurtured in any of these systems? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you that because I'm hearing about like unschooling and I'm wondering, is it a little bit too late? I mean, because I mean, like I'm going to I'm going to college and I definitely feel that like I feel when you're talking about in that medical school situation, like straight A's just trying to be like the model student and all that. I mean, I feel that that's kind of like what my family's told me how it is kind of like immigrant family two generations ago, but still you still feel it. You got to be academically, <laughs> you got to be on top, right? But I'm I'm going to college, and I've definitely just fit into the system the best I could. It was it felt easy, but I guess there has to be some sort of trauma going on. <laughs> well, I mean, you've already a student who has had straight A's. No. I mean, you're coming out of high school already, like valedictorian. Not really, but well, I, know, I mean, yeah, but yeah, yeah. there's a technicality. But <laughs> but like, how do you unschool yourself? Like, is that possible at my age? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I really appreciate that you're thinking about that. There's a difference between being conscious and awake while you're going through the system versus just going through it because of what's expected. I believe that our nervous systems know the difference. It's really about supporting yourself with others who are like-minded or who can support you in that process. There are plenty of unschoolers who end up going to college or going to get advanced degrees, right? I'm not saying they need to stay out of the system forever, but by the time these kids are choosing to go to college, you know that they're going because it's a very awake and conscious choice to study and, you know, excel or get the training they need for the particular thing that they want to do, you know, and how what they're bringing to the world lines up with that, right? Like if you want to be a engineer to build bridges and do amazing things with that, then you do need to go to college and go to graduate school. (laughs) When we were talking earlier, both of us recalled a film that I know for me was the beginning of, oh, I really need to think more carefully about how this Eurocentric model of education is not just affecting me, but it has been exported along with colonization around the world, such that even our tribal cultural ways of being in small villages and learning has been impacted by this importation or this infection of schoolishness in the form of these Eurocentric schools that are now exported all around the world. And maybe you can talk a bit about that film and how that ties in with other thinkers who are 
trying to figure out a way for people of the global majority to come into a way of learning and air education for our not just our kids but our communities because as we've been talking i'll come back to this but i've written down some notes around how are we as a community here gonna now figure out a way to value each other's knowledge and wisdom and brilliance that look very different but have them be a part of this conversation in terms of how we create our community here but that's a whole other topic let's just stick with what is this film because I want our listeners to be able to find it because I know it's on YouTube it's really available around this really well done conversation about the exportation of Eurocentric models of education and how they've impacted literally impacted indigenous communities yeah so the film you're talking about schooling the world made by Carol Black it's a documentary it's very powerful, and I do encourage anyone interested to watch it, although it can be quite graphic. So, But it, everything we've talked about with the history of schools and how schools are currently operating today in, in the U.S., it can still feel that we're a little bit removed. Like, we might still have this idea like, oh, but, you know, now it's so much better and we can't compare it to the agricultural and industrial revolution and what was happening then, right? But if you watch this documentary, it actually gets very real how, like you were saying, it's a direct importation to much more community-centric and land-based cultures, like cultures that are still intact. Mm -hmm. um, but how with white supremacist systems, it's still seen as the last white man's burden to, quote-unquote, educate the world. So all these schools that are created in different villages or in some cases if the village is, is too poor or too rural – families are sending their children to go into schools. And so young children are leaving homes. And it's what I said about how these systems are designed to produce laborers and workers, and then eventually, you know, consumers. It's an indoctrination process. So the documentary covers different regions of the world, you know, in present day global context and how that's affecting communities. We're just deepening this global agenda to break communities and break down culture to impose the capitalist, mm -hmm. you know, to increase the nation's GDP and GNP and participate in the global economy and the global military and dom <laughs> domination systems. Can you talk about Leticia Nietzsche's work and why it was useful in your personal decolonizing work? Yeah, so I love her work and the framework that she provides in her book, Beyond Empowerment, Beyond Liberation, is the, if I had to choose like one single framework that has really been my bedrock and way that I have been able to go through this journey of reclaiming myself and decolonizing myself and healing my internalized oppression is the framework that she provides. I probably can't do it justice in such a short period. I really recommend her work. 
but briefly, she talks about skill sets that we learn from early on, both as agent members of a group. So agent members are the people within a group that have certain privileges and advantages, and then also as target members who are disadvantaged and marginalized, right? And both sets of groups have skill sets that they're using all the time to navigate. But I'll go through the skill sets that she outlines for people with target membership. So in this case, we're talking about race, being a PGM, a woman of color, and living here in the in the U.S. It really helped me. At any time now, I can identify like, oh, which skill am I using or or in right now? And it starts with survival is the first one, and that's just kind of our unconscious way of surviving the system. And we all know how to do it, right?、Mm-hmm. And how to do it well, probably, right? How to approximate, how to simulate, how to act according to the expectations of the people in the agent membership group, and then at some point that can lead to the next skill set, which is confusion, and that's when we start kind of saying, "Wait a minute, what's wrong with this picture? There's something not quite right. Like, why is this happening to me and not to others?" So it starts being confusing. Your world starts getting <laughs> confusing, and you're questioning, and you might be going back and forth between survival and confusion. And you know, in the example I started with, with when that thing happened in my training program, the first thing that happened was I went into survival mode, and I chose my brain, my nervous system chose freeze. Right? I didn't say anything. I I couldn't force my legs to get up and leave the room. I didn't fight about it. I was Just in survival mode, like okay, just breathe through this. I probably was holding my breath. Oh my gosh, I want this to end, and I made it through the night. And then that night, as I was alone, right in a safer space now, because I'm not in the room with all those white people. Like I'm in my own bedroom. I moved into confusion. Like, wait, was that supposed to happen? Should it have happened? Should someone have said something? Should the trainer have said something? And why did it? Right, but I'm going through still, and I'm still not able to even rage about it. And it was only when I talked to another PGM, right, my friend, over the phone, and she was able to call it out and validate that. With her, I then entered the kind of next skill set of empowerment, where you know it started with her raging on my behalf. Right,、mm-hmm. and that's how deep the survival and confusion is, because you're still in it. Like, oh no, well, what if it was innocent, and what you know, what if they didn't really mean it, or they're just ignorant, and I can't call them a racist, or <laughs> all the justification and all the overthinking and replaying, and right. So it took someone else saying and validating, and and then I was able to also just be like. What the fuck, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that's the empowerment voice. So empowerment, moving from survival and confusion to that third skill set, that only happens in target member only empowered spaces, right? So that's what's important about that, and that's what I really appreciate about 
Oceana, your work with bringing the PGM community here together. Because if we're all in our own individual, isolated experiences, then all we're doing is going through survival confusion, survival confusion. It's when we can come together and target only empowered safe space that we even have a chance to move beyond. So there's the empowerment piece. Nieto talks about how being in empowerment is not sustainable. You can't always be raging at the system or at the world. And it's also not always effective. So the next skill set that we gain is strategy. And that's where now we can consciously choose how we're going to meet the injustice when we encounter agent privilege and, you know, and we're being a target member. So that's when we strategize and choose from a place of conscious awakeness. Okay, do I say something? Do I write a letter? Do I leave the program? Do I not say anything and just walk away because I want to preserve my own life force and this person doesn't even deserve me going through the energy of doing something about it, right? So that's when we can be in strategy, Mm -hmm. right? And it's different from survival or confusion or empowerment, like we're just kind of raging or... That's when we're learning how to be effective in fighting injustice and in also preserving our own life force. And then the fifth and last one is recentering. Honestly, recentering, I think I'm only now, after like five plus years, <laughs> only now starting to get moments and glimpses of what she means by recentering. But that is a hard one, right? So recentering is when, you know, you're really in your own power and connected to your own self. And you're able to, even for a moment, look at the world where you are at the center of it. And you are actually not looking at it through what you need to do as a target member in the situation. It's when you're using your life force for yourself. You're using your power for yourself. Not to educate other people or strategize and make something happen, but it's just like, oh, I'm just gonna be here and be in my own power and connected to myself and what I want to connect to around me and it's like really fully on my own behalf. It's a very precious (laughs) feeling. I think there are times now that I've experienced it and then been aware that that's what it was. So that's recentering. That's huge. That's huge. And I think that whole journey of recentering it's funny that you say you just only got there. I feel like Sky Bear is a manifestation of your capacity to recenter. And it's because you are so centered that now I understand how just talking about Sky Bear to other PGM doesn't land always because you can't really hear the purpose and the power of Sky Bear if you are still at survival and confusion right 
Yeah. It wouldn't make no sense to do Sky Bear mm-hmm. if you're still trying to feel, was that racist? I don't know. Maybe it's okay, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, maybe you get some other people in town and go, oh, yeah, that was racist. Okay, so you're, you've are you got some empowerment, but to Leticia's point, it's not sustainable. If you're, you don't have a lot of that safe space to really cultivate this other realm of strategy that gets you to recentering. I'm completely thrilled because you know what? You're not the only one in this community doing that. And now I feel completely like inspired to go and call out all the people in our community who have literally created spaces, manifestations of their recentering themselves as a person of African descent, as a person of Korean descent, as a person of Mexican descent. Like people who are, I mean, that's like so cool. I'm just going to start, you know, gushing all over the place here, so I'm not going to say any more words other than, wow, I'm just on fire now with this whole description of Nieto's work. Yeah, so I I do want to clarify that when Nieto talks about the skill sets, it's not that you graduate from one to the next. She talks about it as a nested set of skills. So in the beginning, you do have to build up the skill sets. And then the idea is that you're going to be traversing the different skills. And sometimes you'll still go into survival or confusion before you can you know, find yourself out again and use the other skills. And sometimes it might be strategic to stay in survival and confusion. But the difference is you're doing it from a conscious and awake place, right? Mm-hmm. Which actually goes back to your question, Lorenzo, about is it too late and how can I go through college being kind of in this system? And yeah, I mean, definitely, I don't think it's ever too late, right? I'm in my 40s now and I'm still working on de-schooling myself and reclaiming parts of myself. But what I wanted to say is there's definitely a difference when you go through, you know, all the hoops that you're going to have to jump through if you do it consciously, like knowing that you're doing it to serve your ultimate goals in life or whatever it is you want to pursue versus falling into the belief that, right, because part of what I'm recovering from still is I used to believe that the number of A's on my report card was a measure of my own self-worth and whether or not I was going to be quote-unquote successful in the world, right? And no one told me otherwise at that time. So I hope you find the people around you to tell you otherwise (laughs) (laughs) and to, yeah, go, you know, go do it. Go through the hoops and, like, get what you need to, but do it in a conscious and awake way where you're not actually believing what they tell you at school. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for this conversation. Just really so much fire here. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What an incredibly high note to end this series on education for PGM in Jefferson County. Talking with Judy really had us thinking about decolonization and the journey of it and how much more there is to do. And so 
Stay tuned, folks, because more is coming our way in our community here around decolonization. But in the meantime, we continue our podcast, Season 1, with now a switch into talking to artists. We'll be talking to individual artists and how it has been for them to make their way in artistic expression here on the Olympic Peninsula. I hope you'll continue to follow along. We appreciate you for listening to this episode of Talk and Story. Music is provided with permission by Ben Wilson and Camilla J. Talk and Story is a project of Well Organized and has enjoyed the support of the Port Townsend Arts Commission, Jefferson Community Foundation, Finn River Farm and Cidery, and the Community Equity Initiative, as well as private, in-kind, and monetary donations. If you'd like to support us, please go to well-organized.org to make a donation to the Talk and Story podcast. That's well-organized.org. Thank you.